Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello, my name is Nathan Cornish-Raley, speaking to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung peoples. Because my positionality and identities give me an outsider lens on today's topic, I wanted to share some relevant aspects of my experience and invite some critical reflection on my own understanding. My pronouns are he, him. I am a cisgender man, proudly gay adhd and a white speech pathologist who speaks a variety of English that is generally privileged in personal and professional spaces in both of my countries, Australia and the United States. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Drs. David Asul and Sterling Quinn to talk about communication and well-being of trans and gender diverse people and how the speech pathology profession can support this. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Asul earlier this year in our episode celebrating LGBTQIA plus excellence in our profession, and I'm happy to be speaking with them again. They are a senior lecturer, researcher, and speech pathologist at La Trobe University, University in Bendigo and helped to develop the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Standards of Care. We're also joined by Dr. Sterling Quinn, who is a lecturer, research coordinator, and clinical educator at La Trobe University, and a member of the Australian Professional Association for Transgender Health. Both Drs. Quinn and Asul helped to develop the La Trobe short course on speech pathology with trans and gender diverse people. So thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. To get us started, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about yourselves and your work. Yeah, so um, I am a white colonial settler and migrant from Germany. So my first language is German, and I have, as far as I know, a mixed Swedish and German ancestry. I also live with a number of invisible disabilities, and identify as non-binary uh, in terms of you know being a gender diverse person myself. Um, I've just moved to McLeod, so living on Wurundjeri country now, whereas I work on Jajawang country, um, as Nathan just said, um, at La Trobe University in Bendigo. Um, yes, and so in terms of my work, <laughs> For a very long time, I've worked at the university um, training speech pathology students. And um, so my teaching at La Trobe is mostly in the areas of voice and stuttering. And um, in terms of my research, I'm really interested in theoretical, qualitative and creative approaches to research. And my main focus has been for many years, the intersections between voice, communication, and well-being. And to position myself within speech pathology, I call myself a critical speech pathologist, which basically means that um, I have an interest in exploring the theoretical foundations of what we're doing, and I mostly do so from the perspective of the social sciences and humanities, so using um, sociology, um, theories, feminist studies, gender studies, transgender studies. Um, so that sort of explains the critical, critical approach. Um, thank you. 
David, I'll follow that up. Um, I feel like even though I <laughs> do a lot of speaking and write about my positionality in lots of papers, uh, it's always a bit of a mess when I have to do it on the spot. So I hope I can be as <laughs> clear as you are today, David. But my name is Sterling Quinn. My pronouns are he or they. I also live and work on Wurundjeri country. I work at La Trobe University as well, but at the Melbourne Bundura campus. Um, for a bit of extra positionality, I guess, as well, although I am a um, transgender person, I'm from a white uh, coloniser background. I'm able-bodied, neurotypical, um, and like David as well, I am also a speech pathologist based at La Trobe, so I do some work in the course teaching speech pathologists. I work as a clinical educator in clinic. Um, the clinic that I work in at La Trobe primarily sees trans and gender diverse clients um, who want to work on expressing their gender through their voice, so it's really exciting to get to work with our speech pathology students in that context and expose them to this community and to that work. Um, in my research, I guess I, um, I I do a bit of work or one of my interests is just um, providing accessible beneficial services to the trans and gender diverse community. But as a trans researcher myself, I also care broadly about just how to do research and how to provide services in a way that is beneficial and not harmful to the community, um, whether that's within speech pathology or, you know, any work that anybody does or any research anybody does with trans and gender diverse clients. Um, so I also am doing a little bit of work with OSPATH at the moment, the Australian Professional Association of Trans Health along those lines, um, putting together some, I guess, ethical principles for doing research in this space as well. And I'm sure I've missed some things there, but um, that'll do for now. So I'll, I'll hand back over to you, Nathan. Thank you both. Uh, Dr. Asul, you mentioned that you view your work as a critical speech pathologist. And I remember in our discussions earlier this year that you completed your doctoral work in humanities and social sciences. And um, and that experience has brought a helpful lens to your understanding of, of subjectivities and identities. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more and how maybe that lens can be helpful to our speech pathology colleagues. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the most important thing I learned um, by engaging with uh, humanities and social science theories is that things are far more complex <laughs> than what I've been taught in my speech pathology training. Um, so, and, and the complexity is about other things um, because, of course, complexity is recognized in speech pathology. I don't want to argue with that. But it's mostly about, um, yeah, say, calling um, the self... <laughs> subjectivity instead of the self is already um, a way of complicating things a little bit. And I will try and explain what the benefit of that is. So complexity as such is, um, uh, you know, difficult to handle if we don't have the, I'd say, conceptual tools. And if we are not able to um, translate those conceptual tools also into practice. 
And so if I speak of subjectivity um, instead of identity or um, self, then uh, that also implies that um, there is not this assumption that we have this thing in the middle of our body, uh, mostly, you know, located in the heart, which is the self. And when we speak, we express the self. It just comes out through our voice. Um, and that's um, something that's often argued also in voice uh, textbook textbooks. So the voice reveals the inner self. Um, and yeah, I'm coming from that other perspective. It's quite um, difficult to understand why these ideas are upheld over the years, over the centuries, almost, or decades, let's say decades. Um, but rather than to say, well, there is, I mean, if we were to look in our chest, we wouldn't find anything. Um, so um, one could say there is no stable self that is somewhere located within us. But what we're doing is we're, you know, actively in our, mostly through our communication practices, we are creating um, uh, something, a version of the self. We, we're creating our subjectivity by presenting ourselves in particular way and ways. And here's where the communication comes in. So we use our voice in a particular way. We use our bodies. We put clothes on. We do our hair. We have jewelry, makeup, whatever. Um, so we're presenting um, the sense of person we, we you know, identify with and in, in all of its different aspects. And that's sort of the part the speaker does. And then the uh, listeners come in and they make sense of that presentation. So they cre create another subjectivity, a subject subjective positioning. And mostly this positioning is done in terms of sociocultural categories. And so that would be gender, that would be age, that would be race and ethnicity and uh, ability, disability, all of these things, First Nation status. So it's another version of self that is created by the people um, uh, outside us. And so we've got several versions of subjectivity and they will need to be negotiated uh, when we, um, well, when we communicate, when we, when we interact, which also means, um, well, so subjectivity is always multiple because other people won't necessarily agree on everything we identify with. And so they will make other attributions to us and position us socioculturally. So it's, it's a um, process in flux. And um, what the important thing is, um, you know, when I relate that back to working with um, gender diverse people say, that we enable uh, gender diverse people to negotiate this creation of subjectivity on their own terms so that they have the capacity to speak back to people in case they're misattributed, in case they're misgendered and say, well, okay, I understand this is what you think who I am, <laughs> but actually I identify in this way and you could acknowledge that by using um, my pronouns and, you know, the forms of address I, I want you to use. And so that is a very different understanding, which also already implies 
um, uh, that there are so many factors involved in the creation of subjectivity. And also maybe to mention that as well, it goes beyond the individual uh, factors, but we're all, we live in a system. We live in a social system. We live in a system that understands gender, ethnicity, you know, minorities of any kind, sexuality in a particular way. And the system is also diverse because it depends on who, where you are, um, how the system operates. And that is beyond individual control. So both the speaker and the listener or conversation partners are sort of shaped by that system. And um, that then sort of shows, okay, it's not only about individual communication that is important, but also the advocacy for systems change, for sociocultural change, which is also increasingly recognized in speech pathology. But yeah, so I've done sort of the application and the theory a, a little bit uh, in once, but um, I think these, these are key. So subjectivity and uh, identification rather than identity and that you know, there is not this stable self, I think are key aspects of um, uh, working with uh, gender diverse people or in the diversity space in general. And um, very important for, let's say, speech pathology discourses to change in that regard and to, to embrace that a little bit more. Hmm. I think it's something that... Um... I guess I'm I'm also from a background before studying speech pathology. Um, I have a, a an arts background too, humanities background. Um, so I, I also brought in some of those perspectives and ideas. But I think in general, being from a minority background, um, you're often forced to maybe tangle with some of these ideas. You come up against the fact that you have your own sense of self but that's up against um story society tells about people like you often as somebody from one of those minority groups you do have to think more about your identity more about how you construct that identity and how other people construct that identity for you um, so i think it's something that maybe again people from uh, people who are trans and gender diverse or who are from other minority groups maybe have done some of that work or thinking already but and it's growing in speech pathology more broadly, but it isn't something that is as widely talked about as it could be, I think. Yeah, thank you both. You've given me personally a lot to think about here. Um, and I think it also sets the stage for a number of things that I'd like to talk about today, you know, um, you know including taking a social constructionist approach. Um, and so I want to get to that. But perhaps if we could back up a little bit, I, I think that a number of people will be kind of familiar with concepts around gender diversity. But I wondered if maybe you could fill in some of the gaps as well and, and talk about you know, some key things that an allied health professional should know about gender diversity. Well, it is tricky to know where to start, I suppose, in part because I feel like um, our profession is doing better and better about understanding some of those basics, just recognizing that trans people do exist. Um, so maybe rather than making this a, a trans 101, we can talk a little bit, a little bit more deeply or a little bit more broadly 
And I think the key there is often um, just make no assumptions. You might have an idea of what a trans person looks like. You might even have an idea of what a non-binary person looks like, but often you're going to be wrong. <laughs> Everybody is so individual. People's goals for how they want their gender to be understood and attributed by others, how they want to express that gender um, through aspects of you know, dress, voice, whatever it may be. Often they won't match up in ways you expect. They might not fit that narrative that society says they will. So really, and I guess this is absolutely the same for working with anybody ever, is just leave all of those expectations at the door and treat everybody as an individual. In part because every trans person you meet will also have those other aspects of their identities going on as well. You know, being trans might not be the most important thing um, in that moment for them. It might be their, um, again, their, their ethnicity, their cultural background. Um, there's so much else going on there. I think, uh, like, in terms of general points, um so important to recognize in general there are more than two genders and also more than two sexes and human beings so and yes. so there are cisgender people they're gender diverse people they're people living with intersex variations and um so that's already it's, it's a fine fundamental thing that's true about human beings. <laughs> so that would need to be attended to regardless of whether we speak to gender diverse people, or, you know, we know who are gender diverse or we speak to inter people with intersex variations directly, but it needs to be attended to in general. So, um, and reflected in, in the literature. So we can't anymore have all of these statistics you know, male versus female uh, frequency of presenting with particular conditions, we need to, you know, always, you know, draw on this understanding there are more than two <laughs> people and there's, um, you know, different sexual differentiation of bodies. We can no longer assume there, that there are only XX and XY chromosomes, that there's only, you know, two types of genitalia, which is not so relevant for speech pathology. But so um, all of this, I find, <laughs> needs to change uh, fundamentally. Um, then also to recognize, and, and that is unfortunately relatively recent, but... Um, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health has now clearly said gender diversity is not a mental illness. <laughs> and so, but gender diverse people and other members of minority positions are exposed to stressors that make them more vulnerable to developing mental, mental health issues. And these stressors are called mm -hmm. minority stress. And so... Um, this sort of implies a fundamental recategorization of any difficulties with communication um, gender diverse people may experience. Um, it cannot be regarded any longer as a psychogenic voice disorder. And sadly, I mean, this is still the main reflection in the literature. So starting to understand what minority stress is 
and you know how it impacts on people's health and well-being i think will be absolutely key and it will be absolutely key to all members of minority positions and also like sterling said there are several people who are members of several minority positions where the minority stress is just amplified and because you just mentioned the the thing with language um i cannot tell you how often people um speak to me in absolutely not respectful ways about the way i speak english um and so um questioning you know whether i could be an australian resident or you know all sorts of things so um this is additional minority stress um for me i basically experience on a daily basis and you know other people <laughs> have other um uh, stressors um going on so so this is really key and so the 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 role of um allied health professionals would then be to in the first instance make sure that with their professional practices they don't increase the minority stress for the people they are seeing and then on the other hand they are also responsible in their professional practice for supporting um people with um their own contribution to the minority stress so there there are also internal um practices and factors that increase the minority stress so how can we help people um with managing uh, minority stress in a way that is most um helpful um and then because we were already mentioning um that gender is a socio-cultural category that is applied to people in everyday encounters so that also applies that uh, means that gender is not given in the body which is again something that's always repeated in the literature um and called biological sex and then you know basically the assumption is well from biological sex um gender identity um you know re- results from that is sort of developed on the on the basis of biological sex but yeah from a social constructionist perspective and i think it's very important that we start to implement that um also um it's important that there are, is a difference between how persons identify a person identifies in terms of gender um how they then present that gender and um, as sterling has mentioned i think that is so important there are so many different ways of presenting gender and it is not um the idea that with the way in which a person presents themselves they can control what gender other people uh, attribute to them it's a different thing so <laughs> gender presentation is what the person themselves does um gender attribution is what also the person themselves does because we also you know judge ourselves whether we you know we are non-binary enough or you know male enough or female enough um so that would be self attribution of gender but then there are other people who attribute gender and not only people but also systems and all of these need to be distinguished in order to be able to decide also in terms of um professional support what is it what, what are the barriers to to well-being 
where is the, the problem with um, uh, the categorization in terms of gender? And unfortunately, I think so far, the majority of, say, speech pathology um, literature, but also transgender health in general, it was focused in a way to work with individual gender diverse people, which sort of suggests there's something wrong in the way they present themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, that needs to be changed with professional help, and then they will be fine because everybody will agree with that um, uh, gender presentation and basically not misgender them, but uh, attribute the correct gender to them. And, well, this needs to be uh, contested. So there is nothing wrong with people can present however they want to present. Um, there are no, no rules around this. But what's important is that um, it's a difference if between other people, um, like I said, attributing gender to a person and the person presenting themselves. And so it's not, it's not the production of gender in that interaction is not under individual control. So the other people don't control my gender. I don't control my gender, but it's the interaction. So it'll always be um, a, a process that is in flux. And so which basically means... Um, the person cannot control the gender, but also professionals cannot control a person's gender. So a speech pathologist doesn't have the power mm. to masculinize or feminize a person. But what they can do, they can uh, provide support for the client's self-presentation so that they can identify with their, with their voice, that they can identify with their other communication. That's what, what can be done. But if a person is misgendered, it's not there, yeah, and nor the fault of the clinician. And I think that alone, you know, should uh, lead to a big change, like really um, understanding that and incorporating that um, in, in research, in teaching, in clinical practice. That would mean a big change. I was just going to jump in and um, I think... The, a really important point there is like a lot of my work, I'm helping people um, change their voice based on their goals for, for self-expression. And I love that work. I love when it's about helping people find that authentic way to express their identity in the way they want. What I like less is clients who unfortunately and very realistically have goals that are related to being a certain way because society makes them feel like they need to. Um, and to me, that says that as a clinician and as a profession, helping people change their voice is one thing that is really valuable work, but we also need to be changing society <laughs> and reducing those expectations. Um, and in terms of just coming back to that original question of um, key things for allied health professionals to know, um, even if you don't work in a gender-affirming space, even if your main clientele aren't trans and gender-diverse clients, you're part of the society. You will have trans colleagues, friends, clients, even if they don't tell you. Um, and we all have relative power and privilege as clinicians. So we can do things actively 
to change that space. If we're thinking again about those health disparities that trans and gender diverse people face, it's not about the individual. It's not inherent to being trans. It's because society is not accommodating or and definitely not celebratory all of the time of difference. Um, so there are things you can do and you should be thinking about the way you can reduce that minority stress and improve um, the health of trans and gender diverse people or other other social minorities as well. Even if, you know, it's not your main caseload, there is work we can all do regardless of where we're positioned and where we work. Yeah, thanks. And as we were talking, I was, I was thinking about how like this minority stress would be experienced by our colleagues and by the people that we supervise um, and when we perform research, so not just service users, but like the spectrum of people that we're interacting with. And I suspect that gender diverse individuals often feel that burden of you know, expressing their, their subjectivity and who they are. And that's got to be exhausting <laughs> and stressful. And so I wonder how we can create spaces or to reduce that burden or to um, make people feel more comfortable, um, you know, discussing who they are and, and what they need from us. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky question because there are so many different contexts that we work in. There are so many big and small changes we can make. Um, and maybe to focus on the small things, for example, I'm a researcher, I, I go to a lot of different conferences and I've been to both um, transgender health conferences this year and I've also been to, to broader you know, medical conferences or um, speech and language kind of conferences. And as a non-binary person, um, and, and I present, I think this is a good example of gender expression, not necessarily matching identity. I present pretty masculinely. I pass as a cisgender man, um, but that doesn't quite fit my, you know, my internal sense of self. And I prefer, well, I'm okay with he or they pronouns, but I do identify as non-binary. But at those trans health conferences, just really small things like pronouns on name badges, um, toilets being gender neutral, um, people talking about their positionality at the start of their presentations, regardless of whether they are part of that minority group that they're, they're talking about, just having that, um, that step built in. Um, that was something at those conferences that made me feel more comfortable. It, it took that burden off. I didn't feel like I was out there representing the whole minority group. Um, there are other conferences where I, I had a, just a worse experience. Um, I know David and I have both had to put our own, <laughs> feel in our own pronouns on our name badge. Um, and that singles us out. It, it makes, well, A, we have to do the work um, and it, yeah, it, it singles us out in a way that can be kind of exhausting. When it's made just part of the process, when it's something that everybody does, some of those just really small, easy things make a big difference. Um, yeah, I mean, easing the burden, I think um, a lot of, you know, people taking responsibility for educating themselves um, will be mm -hmm. really crucial. And I think Speech Pathology Australia could make a contribution to that to make it a little bit easier for um, for members and, and clinicians in general to educate themselves by having some information also um, 
uh, on the Speech Pathology Australia website or, you know, updating the um, cultural responsiveness um, clinical guidelines or <laughs> having a mention of gender diversity somewhere um, um, because I, I had a look, so there's it's nowhere mentioned in the Code of Ethics or uh, the professional standards. Um, so, yes, I mean, as a professional association, um, there could be a lot of uh, support coming coming from it. But then, of course, um, yeah, because I think it would be good um, to really make it a mainstream um, thing to know, um, you know, what, what I just said, you know, that um, the understanding of gender and um, how it's produced and created and influenced and shaped and the understanding of uh, well-being and mental health in relation to identifications or minority positions. I think all of that needs to change and be um, easily accessible for speech pathologists so that they can um, train themselves up. Very similar to um, the, the First Nations professional development modules where I think this is excellent. Um, that's exactly what, what people need, like easy access to um, upskilling in, in areas and then also make it, um, uh, you know, uh, compulsory for professional regulation, like again, has been done for First Nations um, uh, content and, and better knowledge. And I think this would need to be expanded over years um, to include other dimensions of diversity. And maybe also <laughs> I've already got ideas for the new code of ethics, <laughs> how it could be rephrased in a way that it's not, I mean, at the moment, it's a little bit, it's really good for First Nations uh, recognition, but I think it's sort of because of this emphasis, other dimensions of diversity have been neglected and are not as clearly addressed as they, as they could be. And um, yeah, I think that that would be a really good uh, contribution. Otherwise, um, the, the World Professional Association of Gen Transgender Health, you know, I'm very pleased that the standards of care are available just to whoever wants to uh, access them. And also they're increasingly, um, you know, community organizations, really helpful websites. But they're there for people who are really looking for that information. Um, what I think needs to happen is really to make it a part of, um, you know, the standard training of a speech pathologist, the standard expectations of what speech pathologists um, should be able to consider and how that would influence their, their um, daily practice. Um, yeah, so to apply it more to general, the general practitioner rather than only to uh, people who seek out to be specialized um, in these areas. Mm. Um, because, yeah, as Sterling has said, um, we may work with gender diverse people who are not um, concerned about gender presentation or um, being misgendered in their everyday life, but they seek the services of a speech pathologist for another reason, because say they also stutter or something like that. And so, um, yes, it is, it is highly relevant and gender diversity is not necessarily visible or audible. Um, so we have to 
you know, sort of make it as a, you know, turn it into a matter of politeness that whoever person we meet for the first time, we are sort of working out, you know, how do they want to be addressed? How do they identify so that we can be respectful and, and culturally responsive? And I mean, that's maybe another point I'd like to emphasize. Uh, sometimes um, the notion of culture isn't really comprehensively conceptualized, um, but people just use it as often it just stands in for race or ethnicity and maybe people who speak other languages. But then now we understand, oh, First Nations status is a very important uh, component of culture. But gender is also an aspect of culture. It's often seen, and age is also an aspect of culture, whereas it's often seen as this uh, natural characteristic people just have in their bodies. So that's important to know. But also disability is an as aspect of culture. So um, there are... Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, like we know, you know, there's deaf culture, there are, you know, other people who um, also neurodiversity is often discussed in, in response to culture. People who stutter see themselves as having a particular speaking culture. So um, to just um, expand this understanding of culture and make sure that we understand what it means and then we see wow it applies to everything we do in speech pathology and not only you know to those minorities that are um, in a way recognized because everybody is socioculturally positioned and I think there's probably nobody who would only ever be categorized as a member of the majority majority but in some way or other, everybody will be also a member of a minority and have to deal with uh, disadvantages and not only be able to draw on privileges. So, um, yes, mm. I think that would be so, so, so yeah. important. Know, yeah. Nathan, you were, Nathan, you were planning to probably ask about intersectionality and you flagged that as something you wanted to talk about today. And David has already gotten into it a little bit there, but um, I agree that that's, that's so important. Um, recently, I think there's some really fantastic work going on in those intersectional spaces. Um, and I think taking into account that whole person and all of those aspects of somebody's identity is something that we can all do better, regardless of what, what area we're working in. Um, I was kind of humbled and... I know it's something that I, even though I work, my main area of work is with trans and gender diverse people. And I feel like I'm on top of some of these ideas. Um, research, for example, about the experiences of First Nations trans people highlights that if they're um, maybe accessing health service that um, treats, treats them as a First Nations person and is um, culturally respectful and they feel seen, as an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person with that aspect of their identity, they often feel like they need to leave their trans identity at the door. But it goes both ways as well. Often those people come to trans health services um, and they feel like they can't really talk about their like, First Nations identity. And that's something that's put on the back burner. So I think we all need to do a better job of remembering that there is a whole person here. Uh, there are lots of different aspects to their identity and taking into account all of those interactions as well. 
but also just some really nice suggestions you had there, David, about um, um, just if you are, if, if you have the energy, if you have the privilege, like doing some of that work to elevate other people's voices, um, mm. not necessarily expecting people from those minority groups to do the work and to educate other people, you know, doing that education yourself. And I do think, for example, um, OzPath, Speech Pathology Australia, are fantastic in that regard. They're doing more and more work and we are getting better and better. Um, and also I know tying into to research, for example, just really simple things like um, compensating a community appropriately um, if you are expecting them to be experts and give their expert opinion. Um, but big and small things we can do here. And I think that intersectional lens is absolutely key to all of that. And I appreciate both your comments and, and also critical reflection on institutions like Speech Pathology Australia. And I think it's important for us as, you know, as people and as individual professionals and also our institutions to invite and to listen to critical interrogation, you know, of our work and, and um, of things that we can do to be more inclusive. Um, I, I did want to mention um, in regards to SPA that the practice guideline and position statement on working in a culturally and linguistically, linguistically diverse society is currently under review. And I know that the board has been working on a cultural capability framework. And my understanding is that um, part of that is to include aspects of gender diversity. Yeah, I think it's also important too for us to speak up and to um, be part of, of revisions of, of our professional standards and codes of ethics and to um, share those things that uh, haven't been considered or that aren't within the, I guess, the lens of those who are kind of making those policies. Oh, I was Sorry, gonna say, you mentioned the idea of like revision and critical reflection there. And I think that's just a really nice point that we should always just be interrogating our own practice. This isn't, I don't think there's one neat solution here because the society we're working in is constantly changing as well. Like I do not by any means think that I'm, I'm working perfectly or I'm doing things perfectly. Um, so that aspect of just continual reflection, continual revision, is absolutely um, key there, I think. And part of that is also just, I guess, being kind to ourselves and recognising that if we're talking about elevating and recognising the experiences of minority groups and changing narratives, it's hard because if we're talking about the majority or the narratives that we're up against, um, we are socialised to think about gender in certain ways. We're socialised to think about um, First Nations people in different ways, about disability in different ways. Um, that idea of needing to unlearn is really key and it's, it's an ongoing process. We are fighting lots of different social forces there. Mm. Um, I, I misgender myself sometimes. It's, it happens. It's, um, I think, always a work in progress and just being kind to yourself. Um, if you're working on it, if you're reflecting, if you're taking steps, that's yeah, that's fantastic, mm -hmm. even if you feel like there's more work to do. Mm -hmm. 
it's great that we're discussing um, the fact that we are all members of society, um, you know, whether we are a, a, a client or a speech pathologist or a researcher. So I think that's that's a really important point as well. So which also implies, and I think that could be a problem with um, professions like speech pathology um, that, you know, in the past have positioned themselves a lot as sciences, very much like natural sciences, to now understand, wow, we're totally drawn into politics. And it is important to consider that. So um, uh, we are acting with people, and so we are we are dealing with society, and we are also, you know, will see the implications certain um, uh, you know political uh, events have on our our clients, and I mean particularly gender diversity has been so. Um, uh, has been discussed politically in very controversial terms and it's been very damaging for the well-being of um, transgender um, people. And so, um, uh, yeah, it's crucial to say for speech pathology as a profession, yes, there's a role for us to engage with these um, political processes and also to position the association in particular ways. And I think that was so well done with the apology to First Nations people. So that was, that was really excellent. But we do need that also in other um, aspects of diversity. And I'm, I'm thinking trans people have, and, and also queer people in general, have been pretty much also mistreated by a number of professions, just be it by, you know, reinforcing um, a binary um, uh, understandings of uh, sex and gender and heteronormative uh, uh, frameworks. Um, so I, I think it would be great to also have an apology for, for, for that part the, the profession played. Also people with intersex variations who were, you know, basically silenced. It's very rare to, to read anything about, about that uh, uh, in the literature. So um, to understand that and that it's not, you know, it needs to be part of the practice. It's not a negative thing to, to uh, acknowledge um, yes, we're dealing with culture, we are dealing with social processes, we are dealing with politics in a way, and yes, it will be important for professional associations to position themselves. And you can see that with WPATH, um, how difficult it is at the moment to operate as a, a professional association of transgender health when there is so much transphobia and um um, yeah, in in politics worldwide, um, and also in societal uh, movements in general, and yes, that totally changes uh, the positioning of, of of a profession. And um, yeah, I also think you know we need to be prepared for that. And it also like in Sterling, in my case, being involved in the education of future uh, speech pathologists, um, we need to emphasize that. We are not a natural science uh, field. 
but it is a transdisciplinary uh, discipline already, whether we acknowledge it or not. Yeah, I think it's valuable to, to think that, I mean, cha- change is positive, recognizing change, recognizing things we've um, done poorly in the past and we can do better are all positives. Um, it's just, it's part of life. We're working with communication. We're working with people. It's, it's messy. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. We're tackling this in all sorts of different spaces, um, moving towards um, care that's affirming of neurodiversity um, rather than pathologizing is another area that's there's so much change happening in speech pathology in that space too. And that absolutely ties in. Yeah. And my observation is that policy often, I mean, we'd like to think that it updates automatically with new evidence and that evidence is kind of um, obtained in an inclusive and equitable way, but that's not necessarily the case and that uh, no, social no, no. change and yeah, well, like critical reflection or interrogation influence policy. And um, then that policy kind of brings everybody, hopefully brings everybody else along for the ride and, you know, sets those professional standards and expectations for practice. And with that said, I'm curious about the work of WPATH and, and OzPath. I know that they've created uh, standards of care for its transgender and gender diverse people. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that work and uh, how that might be applied or, or implemented by our profession. So I might quickly go first and, and talk about research off the back of a really nice point you just made, Nathan, and then David, I know you're, you've, you've done a lot more work with WPATH and broad standards of care, but um, OSPATH, the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health, has done some amazing work. There are um, standards of care and accessible guidelines for work with trans young people, with trans adults. Um, there's lots of fan stuff, fantastic stuff out there. Um, at the moment, OSPATH is also thinking about guidelines for conducting ethical and, and representative research because you, you just, I really love that point you just made, Nathan, that research and guidelines and protocols they don't happen automatically and they're not unbiased we talk about evidence-based practice but when it comes to how we conduct research who we choose to include exclude how we engage stakeholders all of those things we we have this idea that um, there is you know a perfect magical objective research study which perfectly represents the real world but then the amount of choices that are going into setting up that research study in the first place, those are all informed by, you know, our preconceived biases, um, what we think we're going to find. Um, and when it comes to, I mean, you can see those shifts in research spaces, moving towards studies that maybe include qualitative considerations that do embrace a bit more of that complexity, that have that, you know, neurodiversity affirming lens rather than pathologizing and finding out what's wrong with people. Those are shifts that researchers are making. Um, They don't happen automatically and we can keep moving things in a positive direction there. Um, And yeah, OSPATH and and some of our professional associations are doing really valuable work in that space. Yes, maybe I I start with the research component. I totally agree. Um, How it is, is so much harder 
to um, really acknowledge and be respectful of lived experience if quantitative research is the only thing you accept <laughs> in, in your profession. And so um, I think the and, and it is, has happened over, over the last decades um, that speech pathology is more appreciative of qualitative approaches to research, I think is a key factor to make the research more relevant to the people uh, it's been done with or um, you know, hopefully done with and not, not about. Um, that's the one thing. And the other thing, I think also theoretical, you know, conceptual research needs to be more accepted and also part of the, you know, considered as part of the evidence base. And I mean, I think currently the evidence hierarchies still um, uh, only uh, recognize quantitative research as proper research and randomized controlled trials. And I think we really have to ask ourselves whether in the diversity space, that's the best way to go. Um, if we really want to be inclusive of and respectful of the perspectives of the people uh, we're doing the, the research with. And I totally agree. Uh, yes, so important work to do give provide some guidance about um, how how we can engage in participatory uh, uh, research and also research that um, you know um, provides uh, enough value on the contributions the people we are doing the research with are making to to the knowledge base. Also, just quickly, even in the quantitative, purely quant research space. Things are changing there as well. Um, you know, there are statisticians and people way above my pay grade <laughs> ideas that I definitely um, don't have my head around. But you know, moving away from like p-values from st statistical significance to thinking more about representing even quant data individually and thinking about clinical relevance and clinical significance. Mm. So there, the shift changing um, all over different research fields as well, mm. even in those purely quant spaces. And I think that's reflective of, of some of these really positive broader changes. Mm. Yeah, so so WPATH, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, already since the, I think since 1970s, they have published uh, standards of care for a professional practice with um, uh, gender diverse people. And it's very interesting to look at the history, the conceptual history of the, those standards of care. The whole terminology has changed, luckily. The number of professions that are now included as trans health providers um, has changed. And since 2012, speech pathology is part of it. Before that, speech pathology wasn't recognized as a proper uh, transgender health uh, uh, profession. And um, particular with the recent uh, standards of care, things we've been talking about before have been officially recognized. And I mean, the standards of care um, are minimum clinical guidelines, so they need to be considered by all um, uh, professions uh, providing transgender health care. And so things like that gender is no longer binary, that it's important to take an intersectional uh, approach, that um, uh, the mental health of uh, trans people is now 
understood through the minority stress model uh, alone. Um, all of these things, um, you know, basically constitute major paradigm shifts in the field of transgender health. And so from a speech pathologist perspective, I would say that the chapter on speech pathology in, in the 2022 standards of care um, is in advance of what you know you you sort of read read in the majority of literature um on uh you know uh, people working with uh gender diverse people in the in the area of voice um uh, whether it's you know through surgery or hormone treatment or um uh, providing um behavioral uh, voice uh, training so um Yes, I think so. WPATH is doing an important job there with the standards of care. And then um, uh, the other thing they've developed is a global education initiative. And so they're now um, more than before rolling out professional development um, uh, courses. And meanwhile, there will also be um, a course in a voice and communication, whereas in the past, it's more mostly been focused on mental health and uh, endocrinology and I think general general practice. And in terms of OSPATH, I could maybe also say, um, so Sterling and I, we've been at the, at the recent uh, conference uh, this year and there's been so much change, in particular in regards to representation of trans people at those conferences. Um, it's you know, for me, it felt like a really inclusive space and just to look at people, their outfits, their hair, their tattoos. Oh, the, the fashion was, is definitely better yeah, <laughs> at the trans health conferences. It was really um, a, a, an openly diverse and very welcoming uh, a place that is yeah. and not just not just gender diversity that conference was so yeah. diverse in terms of making sure so those intersectional identities yes. were really visible and really present to like huge space for the voices of first nations trans people yes and yeah and because it was done together with the um new zealand uh, association um yeah, also, you know, acknowledgement of uh, Maori culture. So, um, yes, it, it's, it's an example that uh, of the field really moving forward really quickly in a, in a very good way in terms of, um, you know, becoming more inclusive, uh, being more representative of diversity and, um, yeah, having a real focus on, on well-being. So um, yes, I'm I'm very excited about, about that development, and I think um, speech pathology could just follow suit <laughs> and um, also draw on our resources. Of course, not everything needs to be reinvented. Um, I think it would already be great to just have links mm -hmm. to WPATH and uh, uh, OSPATH on the Speech Pathology Australia website just to, to know that the association is aware of what's happening in that space and um, also that members of Speech Pathology Australia contribute uh, to um, these professional associations. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of support for uh, professional practice that is 
um, inclusive, um, also increasingly trauma-informed um, and uh, informed by intersectionality and uh, the minority stress model. Oh, and we will definitely include uh, in the show notes links to WPATH and OSPATH and um, resources that you think would be helpful for our listeners to have access mm -hmm. to. We are coming up on time. Um, and I think we've covered a lot of the things that I wanted to discuss today. And I, I really appreciate the discussion we've had about being inclusive in uh, the range of practice areas that we engage in um, and that supporting well-being and communication of gender diverse people, you know, isn't just a, an area of practice. And it's not related to, you know, specifically gender affirming care, but it can be applied in, in all aspects of what we do in our profession. I wanted to ask if, if you had any closing remarks or anything else you'd like to, our listeners to be aware of. Or maybe just um, to thank you, Nathan, for the opportunity uh, to speak. It's, it's a great support for... Um, Uh, you know, being able to speak to areas of practice or, or work with with people um, that maybe haven't had so much representation uh, so far in uh, in the, in the past. Yeah, I can absolutely second that. Just thank you so much for the opportunity for facilitating a really fun discussion, and also just for the work that Speech Pathology Australia is doing more broadly. I think. In the past, I felt a bit torn between, am I a clinician working in trans health? Am I a speech pathologist? And more and more, I'm feeling like there isn't that divide so much and I can move more freely between that spaces. And I think that's just telling of the, the work that all of our associations and that all of us as clinicians are doing to, yeah, I guess, expand that scope and recognize that, as you said, gender affirming care doesn't mean you're in a clinic helping somebody change their voice. It's just part of being a culturally responsive, client-centered clinician. And that, that cuts across no matter where you work. Well, thank you both. Um, I appreciate your insights and sharing your experience, um, you know, professional and, and personal and, and how that contributes to the work that we all can be doing. So thank you for your, your time and your thoughts this morning. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Speak Up. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.